Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What's up, everybody? Have a good episode in store. Going to do a little recap of the Net Sixers first round series and a little outlook on the season as a whole. Then going to be joined by Mike Scotto of Hoops Hype for a little bit of an off-season tease and off-season preview of what to look forward to for Brooklyn. All that and more after the intro music. And we are back, Nets World. Eric Slater here on the Believe in Nets podcast, Brooklyn Nets beat reporter for ClutchPoints.com. And we're going to be recapping this first round series between the Nets and the Sixers briefly before being joined by Mike Scotto. And just looking at this series, the Nets were obviously swept for the second straight season by a far superior team. They really looked outmatched. In games one and two, they had a chance or a very good chance to win game three, choked it away in the last minute. We're up by five, I think, with two minutes left. And then in game four, they had an eight-point lead at halftime and just completely choked it away in the second half, went cold from the field. They couldn't guard. They couldn't rebound. And when you're looking at this series as a whole, it's really not too complicated. Obviously, you could just say the Sixers had better players than the Nets. They did. I mean, James Harden, Tyrese Maxey, and obviously Joel Embiid, who everything it seemed to revolve around, you know, they were just outmatched the Nets. But if you're looking to break down the series a little bit more in detail, it really only comes down to two things. And those two things are shot making and rebounding. And the two areas that plagued the Nets throughout this series, just touching on the shot making, the Nets couldn't make a shot in the second half of games in this series. They were completely brutal. They shot 62 of 151. That's 41% from the field and 22 of 74 from three. That's 29.7% in second halves during this series. So the Nets just didn't have guys who could hit shots when they needed them to. It's really that simple. And it's not like they were failing to generate good looks. Jock Vaughn talked about it at several points in the series particularly after game two, that the Nets were getting good looks. They just couldn't hit shots. And if you look at the numbers of what they did to Philadelphia, they were able to shut down Joel Embiid in this series. He, I mean, obviously they're doubling him and it's leading to a lot of open stuff for other guys, but he wasn't, he didn't have the caliber of series that I think anybody expected that he would against this Nets team. And the Nets were able to hold the Sixers under 100 points, two games, and the other one they scored 102. So they did enough defensively to win these games. They just couldn't hit shots. And when you look at the shot making, I'd split this into two categories. The first would be the lead guys, and that's Mikhail Bridges and Spencer Dinwiddie. After a monster game one in which Bridges dropped 30 points on 12 of 18 shooting, he really struggled to find his rhythm. He finished averaging 23.5 points, 43, 40, 78 shooting splits. And I think a big part of those struggles is this being his first time in the playoffs as a lead scorer, obviously. At the ends of game three and four, it just looked like he was fatigued. I mean, He's picking up James Harden full court. He's guarding him for nearly the whole game. And that's just not something that stars do in the playoffs. Why? Because they have to do so much on the offensive end, and they know to able to get their team where they need to be in terms of scoring, they need to conserve a little bit of something defensively. I think that's something that we could see changing with Bridges down the line of him scaling his defensive responsibilities a little bit back as his offensive burden continues to grow. I asked him about that at exit interviews, and he, he didn't shut it down. He 
said that it's something that maybe, you know, could be in consideration next season. So Bridges, you know, he didn't play terrible. He had his moments, still got to the free throw line, still hit some big shots, but overall just wasn't able to comfortably produce down the stretch of games at the clip that was necessary. And not something that should be too surprising given that this is his first time doing it. And he also didn't really have a guy next to him who could score at the level that they needed him to. And that other guy was obviously Spencer Dimwitty, who struggled in a huge way in games one and two. He picked it up at home in three and four, finished at 16.5 points, 43% from the field and 39% from three. He just didn't look comfortable for the majority of this series. And the offense felt incredibly forced at the end of games with Spencer leading it. Obviously, this whole iteration of the new look Nets for those last two months, Spencer has been the guy, despite Mikhail Bridges' insane numbers, has been the guy they put the hands of, put the ball in the hands of at the end of games, largely due probably to his playmaking abilities. He's a little bit of a natural, more natural ball handler and lead scorer. He's done it for longer at his career, but it was tough down the stretch of these games, man. I mean, in Philly, he did not look comfortable at all. He, his three ball wasn't dropping. I think he was two of eight in those two games. He wasn't going to the rim. Joel Embiid was impacting the whole Nets team around there with his gravity down low. And like I said, the offense at the end of games, it just it didn't feel organic. It didn't feel like it was flowing well at all. There was particularly a stretch at that end of game three when Joel Embiid was obviously hobbled. The Nets were up by five with about two minutes left. And Embiid has five fouls. And there's a possession where Spencer has Embiid on the perimeter in isolation, and he passes it. First, he passes it to DFS in the corner. DFS gives it right back as if almost to say, go at Embiid. He's got five fouls. Then he passes it to Royce on the right side. Royce looks at Cam Johnson, looks like he thinks he's open, tries to throw a pass, realizes he's not open, turns into a turnover. Tyrese Maxey grabs it, goes the other way. It was all downhill from there. And Tyrese Maxey really took over and obviously Philadelphia ended up winning. But on that possession with five fouls, Joel Embiid in isolation, a star is taking the ball at Embiid in that spot. And that's just, the Nets just didn't have that. And it's ironic because in that game three, the player who was best suited to close out a playoff game and get the Nets a key win there, he was in the building. He just wasn't a member of either team. And that was obviously Damian Lillard who was sitting courtside. And I'm sure he's watching that like, oh man, we would win this game if I was in there. So we're going to touch on Dame obviously a little bit more later, but as I said with Spencer, the decision-making at the end of games, the feel for the offense, the feel for how to get to his spots in those moments, it wasn't there. And between Dinwiddie and Bridges, both of those guys are just guys who haven't done it as top options in the playoffs throughout their career, particularly Bridges. So not all too surprising. You'd like to see a little bit of better offensive production down these stretch of games, but something along the lines of obviously what you could have expected. And then just touching on the role players, they just shot well below their averages from three. Jock Vaughn talked about this at length. And you look at Royce O'Neal, guy who shot 39% of the regular season, who's four of 22 in this series. Joe Harris, 43% in the regular season, one of 12 in this series. Seth Curry, 40% in the regular series, regular season, three of nine in this series. That's between Harris, Curry, and O'Neal. That's eight of 43 for the series from three between them. That means on average, you're getting a two of 11 performance each game between three of your top shooters. You're not going to win like that. You're just not. I mean, Dorian Finney-Smith is the other guy. He actually shot it a little bit better, was at around 40% on limited sample size. But just none of those guys that felt like you were confident that they were going to hit their shots when it went in. And that's tough for a team that said that they want to take 40 plus threes per game. 
Touching on another guy quickly, Cam Johnson was probably the biggest bright spot for the Nets in this series. 18.5 points per game, 51% from the field, 43% from three. Really didn't look scared, struggled in game four, but aside from that was really great. Stepped up and hit tough shots for the majority of the series. Had a 22-point first half in game two at Philadelphia. He set his playoff career high just in that half. Went right at Joel Embiid. We saw him put that on that poster. Tried to dunk on him again later in the series. So just a real positive for the Nets for a guy that they're going to try to retain a restricted free agency. And I think did well for himself and upped his value a little bit was showing that he can expand perform in an expanded role in a playoff series. So we're going to talk about his situation this offseason a little later on. So obviously that was all the shot making. I talked about the rebounding 80 to 22 in second chance points during this series, Philadelphia outscored Brooklyn. That has to be one of the largest margins in recent NBA playoff playoff memory. And at face value, you know, you're saying, okay, this is a Sixers team that has Joel Embiid. The Nets are going to struggle rebounding. And the Nets were obviously doubling Embiid. They're scrambling off those possessions. Leads to fatigue, leads to guys losing guys at the end of those possessions. And all of that was true. So I understood the rebounding deficiencies and the rebounding struggles in those first three games. I mean, the Nets have Nick Claxton in there. He's giving up over 60 pounds to Embiid. They just don't have the personnel to do it. So I wasn't surprised it had been the case all season. But then game four is when you lost me. The Sixers won the offensive rebounding battle 15 to five. And they outscored the Nets 25 to 10 in second chance points in a game where they didn't even have Joel Embiid. I mean, we're talking about B-ball Paul Reed, Montrez Harrell at center, and then 37-year-old P.J. Tucker just embarrassing Brooklyn all over the floor. And Jock Vaughn after that game four and after this series ended was clearly exacerbated by this rebounding issue. The Nets ranked 28th in defensive rebounding during the regular season. It doomed them during the sweep, and Vaughn made it known following the sweep that he was tired of this. Got a sod here. Here's what he had to say. Piece of it that keeps staring us in the face. We got to grab onto it. We got to get bigger over the over the summer. We got to get nasty over the summer. We got to get guys who who really love hitting and take it personal when the other team gets a rebound. That's what we'd be looking for. And this is not an anomaly during Sean Marks' time as general manager. I wrote about it recently. The Nets have never ranked better than 24th in defensive rebounding during his six years as GM. And they really just haven't prioritized size during that time. They drafted Jared Allen, who came to the league at around 230 pounds. They rolled with him for Marks' first three seasons. Then they used a small ball community at center that was Blake Griffin, Jeff Green, Bruce Brown. And since then, it's been Claxton, who's you know a great guy who's broken out as a perimeter defender, shot blocker, finisher. But is not a elite rebounder by any stretch of the imagination at just 215 pounds. They've prioritized much more, been about pace, been about shot making, three-point shooting. And Mark seemed to indicate at his exit interview that that could be changing this offseason after Vaughn's comments. Here's what he had to say. Without a doubt, we need to make some changes, like in terms of adding some size. I think JV said it last night, add a little nastiness. Is that what it was? Yeah, all right, so yeah, so we add a little bit, bit of that, right? Add a little bit of the Brooklyn grit that we've talked about for sort of six years. But that isn't anything that Marks hasn't said before. So until there's a clear personnel focus there and they really make it clear that they're prioritizing rebounding and some grit inside, it's tough to take what he says seriously on that front. So shot making, rebounding, the two areas that doom the Nets obviously don't have a star player up to this point. Mikhail Bridges is approaching that, but those are the top two reasons that they got swept for the second year in a row. And just looking back at this season, 
Obviously, it was a rough start. Kyrie got suspended, and then he comes back. The Nets start to play better. Ben Simmons actually starts to show shades of his old self for like a two- or three-week stretch. That leads into a monster span where the Nets won 20 of 22. They're a half game back of the Celtics for the NBA's best record with a chance to claim the best record against Boston in their next game. And then, obviously, KD goes down during that game in Miami. They play a little bit without him. Kyrie asks out. Rest is history, and it's really tough because – you look at the East, I mean, it looks wide open right now. I mean, the Celtics are obviously still the betting favorite, and I think the Nets would have a tough time getting by them. But Milwaukee's down 3-1 to the Heat, as crazy as that is, because everybody thought left the Heat for dead after the end of the season and that play and loss to Atlanta. But they're down 3-1. Looks like the Bucks could be out. The Nets, I don't think, would have had trouble taking care of the Knicks or the Cavs in a seven-game series. And then you talk about Boston, who I think they would have trouble with, but just dropped the game to Atlanta without DeJounte Murray, where they just completely looked lost down the stretch of the game. And now they're 3-2. I mean, they would have had a shot. And it's tough to say that, you know, they wouldn't have had a puncher's chance, at least, to come out of the East in this field and potentially have, you know, at least some kind of a shot at the title. And how many years can you say that? And the Nets had it. They're playing elite basketball. It was staring them in the face. And then obviously Kyrie Irving asks out. KD looks around, doesn't say that, says, I don't want to be here anymore. And that's the end of it. So, you know, really tough way to look back on this season. But the Nets have some picks. They have a lot of picks. They have some nice players, Mikhail Bridges, Cam Johnson, Nick Claxton, some role guys. So really, I think there is a path in this offseason to where they could look to get back into that contention window potentially. So going to talk about that right now. I'll be joined by Mike Scotto of Hoops Hype after the break. I'm joined now by my man, Mike Scotto, one of the best in the business when it comes to Intel and one of the best Nets beat guys out there. How you doing, man? Hey, Eric, I appreciate the kind words, brother. Enjoyed sharing the uh, the locker room and the media room with you and Barclays, man. Great to chat with you. Yeah, so the the Nets are out now. What's uh just what's the rest of the playoffs in the season look like? Probably a lot of action leading up to the draft. What's it look like for you? Yeah, I mean, right now I've got obviously I'll be traveling to like the Knicks home games. I'm not going to go on the road to Cleveland. Um, been working on some NBA mock draft stuff at the moment. Uh, I'll be in Chicago for the combine all week. Uh, it's going to be a long and fun trip at that uh, in the middle of May. So looking forward to that. And and, and Eric, a lot of the the stuff that we're going to end up talking about long term when you talk about uh, trades, getting ready for the draft and free agency, that's where it really begins because you're going to know uh, the lottery results and then everything kind of takes shape from there as, as teams start to outline their offseason plans uh really in depth yeah so you know that's when the nets did their exit interviews that's something he dorian finney smith was the guy who got asked you know what what can the team do to gel this offseason and the first he almost cut the guy off and he was like well we got to see who's even going to be here in the offseason so exactly. we'll kind of wait for the draft and after that and see what you know see how we go from there so it seems like obviously the draft's a lot of what goes on there so with that segue, I want to talk, obviously, about the Nets' offseason plans. They're a team that can go one of a few directions in terms of going aggressive, kind of staying the course they're on, trying to accumulate some more picks. And obviously, the things everybody's talking about is the Damian Lillard to Brooklyn smoke right now after he attended Game 3 of that playoff series. 
He's seen leaving the building with Mikhail Bridges, who he's close friends with. On Sunday at the exit interviews, Mikhail was asked if he knew Dame would be attending. He says, I know people, kind of with a little bit of a smirk. So make of that what you will. Cam Johnson says that he knows that Dame and Mikhail are close friends. So obviously a lot's been made of this. Lots of the times in this league, when there's smoke, there's fire. You wrote a little about it. So do you think that's the case in this circumstance with the Nets? Well, certainly when I talk to NBA executives around the league, uh, it was a scenario where they could see the Nets going after Damian Lillard. Now, what I would say is I think a lot of teams certainly will be in that conversation. Certainly, you look at uh, Pat Riley with the Miami Heat. They've always uh, been linked to star players. Um, you know, I, there's a bunch of teams out there that if Damian Lillard is put on the market, will make a run at him. You know, certainly he's always been connected to the Los Angeles Lakers. Um, but, you know, Eric, I think the biggest thing to that is if, is Portland going to put him on the market? Because they also have to decide what they're doing. They have uh, Jeremy Grant coming up on free agency and they've got uh, a roster where it can go either way as well. They've got some young pieces and young guys and like Anthony Simons, for example, Shade and Sharp. Um, but you know, Damian Lillard is getting a little bit older now and he's, he's still in the prime of his career, but for Damian, it's, it's time to maximize his, his shot at a title window. And I, I think that for Portland, they really got to figure out is, are, are they going to be able to do that truthfully in, in the near future? Um, or do you kind of move Dame and, and reset the clock? I mean, it's tough. The guy's obviously a franchise icon and, um, the all-time leading scorer there, but uh, certainly every NBA team outside of Portland is going to be monitoring his situation. You know, there's a lot of other guys around the league that are considered all-star players that I think teams are going to be looking at, certainly with Washington, with the Bradley Beal situation now that they uh, are no longer employing general manager Tommy Shepard. He's out. Uh, they've got to figure out what direction they're going to go in. They've got two key free agents on the market, Kyle Kuzma and Kristaps Porzingis uh, with Chicago. You've got Zach Levine as a guy that um, people have always been monitoring uh, and what direction they're going to go. They've got Nikola Vucevic as a free agent uh, that they're going to have to, in my opinion, pretty much try to re-sign uh, given all that they gave up to get him from Orlando. So a lot of moving parts coming up, but with Dame and the Nets, um, certainly the friendship ties with Mikhail and, and Dame's kind words and, and uh, complimentary words about Mikhail Bridges and Cam Johnson in the past um, have come to the forefront a little bit again. But, um, you know, when you looked at the Nets this series, uh, you know, Spencer Dinwiddie, their point guard, uh, has some ups and downs in the series. And I think that certainly when you, you know, you look at Nets fans and Nets Twitter, they felt like, well, if, if they had Dame or a guy like that, then certainly they would have fared better. Well, no question. But the asking price for Dame theoretically would be high, of course. And if you're getting into a bidding war, I do think there are other teams out there that may have better assets, even though Brooklyn has picks coming in from the Phoenix trade and the Dallas trade. Uh, those are further down the line that maybe could hold value, not as much now in the in the near uh, present. Yeah. So going to circle back to the asking price, just 
for where this all came from, obviously, like you said, Dame and Portland are at a bit of a crossroads. He said, I think he, I think he was on Stephen A's world and said, he asked him, Stephen, I asked him about the path moving forward with Portland. And he said, you know, they're going to have a decision to make, and I'm going to have a decision to make. Can they put a contending team around me? And that was kind of seen as like a soft ultimatum, which shouldn't be surprising at this point with where they're at with him. So that you know, in conjunction with his friendship for, with the Mikhail Bridges and also attending came, game three is where a lot of this came from. And, you know, Dame's made it no secret, obviously, that he's very high on Bridges as a player. I have, you know, three separate quotes and comments from him about Bridges. Just a couple of weeks ago, he's asked by Stephen A., who are you a fan of in the NBA? He, he says, uh, Devin Booker and Mikhail Bridges. Before this season, he was asked on a podcast what player he would like to see the Blazers add, you know, in a perfect world. He said, if I had a player right now that I could add to our team, I would say somebody like Mikhail Bridges or OG Ananobi or Jared Vanderbilt, somebody like that. I love those three guys. And then the most interesting quote to me is from a 2021 interview with Yahoo Sports, something that I know you saw and I put in one of my articles also. If you look at Phoenix, they don't have a bunch of stars. They got people who are really good at what they do and understand their roles. CP3 and Book are all stars, but DeAndre Ayton is a quality setter. Jay Crowder's an experienced stretch four. That's tough. Cam Johnson is nice, and Mikhail Bridges is my favorite small forward in the league. You look at how that team's put together, that's what my vision is. And I thought that that was just a really interesting quote because it sounds very similar to the current supporting cast in Brooklyn in the case that Cam Johnson and Mikhail Bridges obviously got a lot better. You have Nick Claxton, who's emerging as a breakout center. And then you also have, you know, Royce O'Neal and Dorian Finney-Smith as veteran wings. So, you know, in your eyes, obviously you were talking about the asking price and other teams having better offers. It seems like with a guy like Dame, who's entrenched into that organization, that he obviously holds a lot of power. And if he says, you know, the Nets are somewhere that I want to go, that is, you know, a huge point of leverage. And it's going to obviously be a factor for an organization like Portland, who he is their guy for their franchise for the however many last years. Yeah, I think when it when you talk about Dame, it's interesting, like you brought up OG Ananobi, certainly Portland was in the mix to try to get him previously. Um, so I do think Dame's voice matters there. there there's no question about that. Um, nobody's getting Mikhail Bridges. I tell you that right now. I yeah. the, the fact that Brooklyn, as I had reported on Hoopsite many months ago, that they passed on four first round picks from Memphis um, speaks volumes to what they believe he's going to be long term. But you know, when it comes to Dame um, and, and Portland, again, these are conversations they've got to have. What direction are they going in? Um, b- big picture. Um, I, like I said, I think they've got good young assets and uh, Anthony Simons and Shade and Sharp. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, they, you can come up with a lot, lot of different scenarios uh, across the NBA. You know, I think at one point, like this was NBA Twitter. This wasn't really reported, but like NBA Twitter would like hypothetically throw out, oh, would you, what if you're like the Pelicans? Do you try to move off of Zion because he's been injury ridden and, and try to make something for Dame and reunite him with CJ? It's like, it, there's a lot of different hypotheticals out there, but in the NBA world, we don't live in those worlds of hypotheticals. And, we, you know, I, again, I think the, the combine's really going to shape a lot. Um, you know, I'll tell you this, Portland in the lottery, they somehow end up with Victor Wembanyama. Yep. It is a totally different conversation. You know, yep. Vic, that's a guy that could change things for everybody. You know, who knows? What if they end up with number two and they have a chance to get Scoot Henderson? 
A lot of variables still in play here, but um, it's going to be interesting to see coming up. I, I look forward to a little more clarity after the lottery when we when we can really start to dissect and uh, put the puzzle pieces together. Yeah, I'm glad you highlighted the lottery because that doesn't seem like something that people are talking about enough when it comes to Portland situation because they have the fifth best odds. And I think that's at like a 10%, but it's not nothing. I mean, like they have a legitimate shot. That's why they Absolutely. shut Portland. Uh, that's why Portland shut Dame down for the last two, three weeks of the season was to get up there. So they have a shot there. So obviously we're not going to see anything, you know, transpire before they figure out what pick they have. And if sh anything short of a Wembenyama, whether it's two, three, four, whatever, they, you know, could look to potentially move that pick for a proven player to try to make a win now move to help Dame. Um, so that's definitely something to watch in your eyes, just your opinion, not anything you've gotten concrete, obviously, because this is the topic that everybody's debating right now with the Nets. If the Nets have this opportunity and Dame says that he's, you know, they're in whatever many of his top teams, is this something that you think that they should make an aggressive move to pursue? Whether it be, it would probably be something along the lines of, I would think at a base four first round picks, then you probably have to inc include Ben Simmons to make the money work. That's going to take um, at least one or two more picks. So just what's your opinion on that? Theoretically, I think for the Nets, you got to see, like you touched on what the asking price is with, with Dame, it's certainly going to be high. Uh, you know, for a guy like Ben Simmons, he's got two years left on his deal, fully guaranteed money. You're talking almost $80 million. You'd probably have to put at least, in my opinion, two firsts to move his contract. Uh, think of it similar to the way like teams are trying to negotiate on Russell Westbrook a little bit. Um, so I don't know if it's advantageous for the Nets overall to do it, because even if you theoretically had Damian Lillard, Mikhail Bridges, Cam Johnson, and let's say you kept Nick Claxton, yeah, it's, that's a playoff team, but how are you, how are you going to supplement that going forward? Um, what else can you be after that? Um, that to me, like, that's the question. If the Nets feel like that that's a top four team, maybe they go for it. Josai clearly is not worried about the luxury tax. He's shown a willingness to do that, which I do think is important and noteworthy. Um, but now the way that the new CBA is going to work, the second tax apron really limits teams, you know, yeah. in terms of spending, you know, mid-level and um, that to me is draft picks. the you can bigger trade. issue. Yeah, yeah. To yeah. me, that's the bigger issue. Because then you're pretty much filling it out at that point with minimum guys. Yeah. So because because Dame, Dame's contract is going to eventually hit the sixty million dollar mark, yeah. and it's mm -hmm. it's a lot of money. So to me, I certainly think like I would say this in a theoretical sense, like Dame would be the type of quote unquote star I think the Nets would want in the sense that he is a loyal guy, and yeah. um, I think that. Um, well, I haven't heard him say that he thinks the world is flat. So, uh, you know, there's that, but I mean, look, it's a different dynamic. It, it just is Yeah. But a guy like that versus guys like Kyrie and KD who came in and, you know, they brought Deandre Jordan with them and, um, they had other guys that they had some thoughts on as far as the roster and, I'll say this. I mean, you, you see it in Los Angeles with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. On paper, you make these moves and they're a no-brainer. Yeah. But injuries and variables come about and things change. You saw Kyrie talk about that they would have won if he was healthy against the Bucks. I personally agree. 
I do as well, yeah. I'd say the same thing with James Harden. The whole NBA was scared at that point um, of the Nets. And, you know, everybody was getting all upset that they got LaMarcus Aldridge and Blake Griffin <laughs> at the time. Yeah. And it's like, how much help do they need? Da, da, da. And, and whatnot. So, to me, I just think for the Nets, I could see a guy like Dame certainly appealing to them on yeah. and off the court. Um, you know, Sean Marks talks about trying to get the culture back. Um, and, and, and kind of resetting it a little bit. Certainly, Mikhail fits that low maintenance guy, star quality on both sides. Uh, and he's, he's a steal of a contract right now, um, which he signed well before he took off, was appropriately paid. Now it's, it's like a bargain. Yeah. Uh, future all star guy next year, in my opinion, and in the eyes of executives and scouts, no question. Um, Cam Johnson developed a little bit too, you know. Uh, he's going to cost, you know, like I touched on, spoke to six executives. I'd like to think that's a decent number. Uh, four for 90 was mm-hmm. a good range for him, according to them. So we'll see. A lot of, lot of big decisions for the Nets, but with Cam being restricted, they certainly have it in the driver's seat. Yeah, I definitely think there's something to what you said about if the Nets were going to go after a star guy, it being a guy like Dame who brings none of what you just what they just had to go through for the last three years with Kyrie and KD and just a guy who really at the forefront as the face of a franchise, I think it would just be a breath of fresh air for them. Yeah. I was I didn't plan on touching on this, but just what you said about Kyrie with what he said about if I didn't hurt my ankle in that game four against Milwaukee, we win the finals, no doubt about that. I mean, talk about a sliding doors moment in NBA history, because if I was thinking about this right after that happened and, you know, I feel like people forget that prior to that Giannis was the knock on him was that he wasn't a playoff performer. He got knocked out, you know, in the first couple of rounds all the way prior to that. If Kyrie doesn't get hurt there, I think the Nets certainly win that series and probably the championship. Giannis is, doesn't have a title. He still seemed in that seen in that light. Budenholzer is definitely out in Milwaukee. I mean, that was the word uh, prior to that happening. A lot of smoke about Rick Carlisle at that yeah, point. Going yeah, there. and just yeah. it's unbelievable how that, you know, one injury, obviously Harden too, but that ankle turn, KD's foot, it's it's crazy yeah. how Harden's that changed the course. All of it. Yeah, yeah, so many things in NBA history, whether it's Giannis, whether it's how he's looked upon as a Pantheon all-time great, Nets with Harden, you know, Kyrie KD, just by winning one championship, they're entrenched to that franchise forever, as opposed to going the other way. And a lot of people feeling a certain type of way about them, you know, a a little bit of a tangent, but just it's unbelievable how there's, there's a lot of luck involved in this. And they may be, and and if the Nets win the title, do you stay together? Does that trio stay together? This is the greatest trio that never was in a lot of ways. The biggest what if there's going to be, I'm sure, an ESPN 30 for 30 documentary on it. Somebody's got to talk about it. I hope I'm one of them because like that could have been one of the greatest dynasties. And you saw it was the greatest offensive efficiency, you know, defense, a little bit of another story, but who cares? They're dropping yeah. 130, 35 yeah. um, a night. And even though Harden is a different version than the Houston prime James Harden, just Kyrie is a 40, 50, 90 guy off the ball can shoot. Uh, Durant unstoppable. Mm-hmm. I, I just, you know, you, you had Nick Claxton on pick and rolls. It just, man, it was such a, such a time. And the other thing I think people forget, Eric, 
like if they would have won, you know, guys like Harris Levert, Jared Allen, Dimwitty, they all would have got rings. Yeah. Okay. You know, Joe Harris, the face of the culture, mate, the culture. <laughs> he would have got a ring too. Everybody would have got a ring. And now you look at um all these other teams now that are competing and they made, you know, big blockbuster trades. It, nobody thinks about that, but that stuff matters when you look back down the line. Um Definitely. totally changed the course of I think in a lot of ways, yeah, you said it. NBA history, you can make you can make that statement and and feel good about it. I I make that statement. I don't even think twice about it, honestly, just because where with where Giannis is going to end up, with how KD's you know career is looked upon now, even you know just with having not won a title as the lead guy, now he's going to Phoenix with how they're playing. I mean, he's obviously a huge part of what they do, but Booker's the guy putting up 40, 50 points a game right now in this first round series. And you just, I mean, you just talk about it with the luck and how many things went wrong and, you know, the criticism that Sean Marks gets for, you know, what went down as GM. But it's just like, if if they don't have those injuries and they win that championship, it's a whole different story. And if you talk about an owner in Joe Psy, like if you, if you're just going down the list of owners that you would want to like sit down and tip beers with and just get the whole rundown of, Hey, like what went down here? Yeah. What was the deal? I like Joe Psy has to be like at maybe the top of that list of like the last two decades of a guy you just want to be like hey man like what what went down here i, like, I would i would shut down mcmahon's by barclay <laughs> center and i would uh have every beer on tap with with joe side to discuss that yeah. that season in particular no question and then shortly after that i would talk to him about uh the vaccine situation mm. And I would talk about Steve Nash's coach. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of things that a lot of things that you would talk about there with Joe Sai. And even like KD got asked about it. Um, I think it was an article with Logan Murdoch from The Ringer got asked about his relationship with Kyrie and said, you know, there's that's not something I want to put out in public. Like it was fine. The, reading the tea leaves and the stuff that how it sounded towards the end of the season it doesn't sound like it was fine with between them at the end. I, you know, obviously it's speculation, but there's just so many things that went down there behind the scenes that it seems like maybe one day we'll hear from Nash or Cy or KD or somebody. But right now it just seems like there's so much more to the story that people don't know. I mean, if you're Durant, Kyrie was the one who wanted out first and, yeah. uh, you know, then he almost has to react to Kyrie Yeah, because at the time they were 18 and two. And I know they were waiting for KD to come back, but I don't, I don't care how much of a percentage you want to call it, whether it's a puncher's chance or a true contender, they had a shot to win a title. Yeah. Once, once Kyrie asked out, um, it, it was obviously for him based on a bunch of things, so be it, but that ended Brooklyn's shot to win a title this season. There's no yeah. question. Um, and it's ironic because, you know, you think about Kyrie with the vaccination stuff. That obviously had a huge impact. His relationship with Steve Nash, huge impact. How he impacted how James Harden felt. Kyrie was always at the center of Nets world as, you know, the, you know, the, the hashtag is, you know. <laughs> um, and, and in a way, it's ironic when he was saying that, you know, that, that season, you know, when they lost to Milwaukee, like they could have won. And, you know, he thinks about it all the time. It's like, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of factors there. You know, uh, Nash being the coach, 
It was like Jason Kidd 2.0 yeah. all over again. Um, but yeah, like they just, so once he asks out, KD's got like a couple of days to be like, all right, I know the return you got back. It's like him and a bunch of, I mean, I get I, high-level role players, you want to say, maybe, but he doesn't have another co-star with him. Yeah. So it's yeah. like, what does he do? And then, you know, Phoenix was always in the back of his mind from the trade that, uh, excuse me, the offseason when he yeah. wanted out. And, and in a way, I think Durant playing this year totally changed the, the return that he could have got because yeah. they weren't getting that much. Now, you can make an argument, well, would you rather have had Jalen Brown and a first Mm-hmm. for Kevin or would you wanted the boatload of picks from Phoenix beauty's in the eye of the beholder time will tell what those picks look like down the line um you know certainly Chris Paul's not getting on any younger but I think KD this was their shot for Phoenix to really go for the chip mm-hmm. certainly for Chris Paul he's never going to have a better shot than now you got to see if they stay healthy these these are all dynamics to weigh but again once Kyrie wanted out, that was it, pulled the plug. And it just seemed like during his whole tenure there, um, you know, whether, you know, Kyrie feels like this or not, I don't know. But it, a lot of it revolved around him, whether it, I think he wants to say that or not. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I mean, we, we could yeah. we could talk till we're blue in the face about Kyrie. There's no doubt about it. But, you know, I touched on it earlier when I was talking on my own on this pod, what you said about their chances. I mean, if he doesn't ask out and they play out this season, I mean, you look at the way that the East is unfolding right now. You got, you know, Milwaukee's down 3-1 to Miami, a, t- a Miami team that everybody thought was dead towards the end of the season after that play. And lost, lost Tyler Hero, mind you. Yeah, lost Tyler Hero. So Milwaukee may be out. There's a very, very real possibility. Then yeah. you got the Knicks and Cavs, two teams that I think the Nets with their version of KD and Kyrie people thought would have been able to take care of. And then you have Boston, who still should be the odds-on favorite. And I think the Nets would have a very tough time getting by, but just lost to an Atlanta team without DeJounte Murray and certainly don't look like they have it all figured out down the stretch of games. So like, like you said, we're talking about a Nets team that after, you know, right up to the KD injury in Miami, they had a stretch where they won 18 to 20. They were a half came back of Boston for the best record in the NBA, heading into a matchup with Boston with a chance to claim the first. So, you know, it's. And it seemed like it was clicking with Jack Vaughn, too. Like, he seemed yeah. like he got through to Kyrie well. They had a good relationship. He always used to work him out during games from yeah. the beginning of the Steve Nash era. Like, it, it, it just seemed to work. I, I would say this to you, Eric, you know, when you're talking about like kind of how KD felt and he talked about the relationship with Kyrie and, and Logan Murdoch, it's like, I'm sure there's some feelings there. No, no question. There, ha- there has to be. There has by to the, be. How could you not? Way, like, by the way, through- for the, the audience, we're going to get back to Dame. This is a long tangent, but I feel like this is necessary following the end of this Nets, you know, probably one of the craziest seasons in NBA memory. My bad for cutting you off. Go on. Just wanted to throw that in. No, no, I, I'm with you, man. Um, yeah. I just feel like there's so much like, you know, it's crazy. It feels like Durant and Irving were on the Nets like a lifetime ago. Yeah. It's been such a like whirlwind season and from the, the, the summer when they wanted out and and those discussions it just such a roller coaster of a season and then 
again, to get to that moment where you're 18 and two and you think you really got a shot and it's all clicking and then the plug just gets pulled. Um, when Kyrie wanted out and then it goes to Dallas and they're, you know, getting fined for essentially tanking at the end of the year. It's just like, what a, what a time, what yeah. a time. And, and now you're, it's interesting because now if you're the Nets, you're trying to turn the page and you've got Sean Marks who originally did it with nothing, nothing in the cupboard, mm. nothing. And now you got Mikhail Bridges, Cam John, you've got some pieces, Nick Claxton, you know, you've got role players. We've got plenty of wing. They've got plenty of wing players that they can move. And I know we'll touch on that. Um, and you got picks. Yeah. You don't even have your pick, but you have picks. So yeah. this is a way for Sean Marks to kind of reinvent himself a little bit again. And uh, we'll see what he learned from the, the star duo and trio era. Yeah. And uh, how, how he builds going forward. Um, yeah, I th that was a that was a very long tangent, but I think that it uh, it wrapped up nicely with us segueing into the new era because we were talking right before that about your opinion on what the Nets whether they should be in on a move for Damian Lillard and my gut, you know, is this something that the Nets should do? For mm -hmm. me, my gut honestly says no that they shouldn't and that they should you know hold back assets for a guy who's 32 years old but it's something that i could be talked into if a few things played out like you just said with the nets draft capital they have 10 first round or 11 first round picks over the next seven years that's the fourth most in the nba so to me all this goes back to dame and his preference because if dame says i want to go to brooklyn i want to go play with mikhail bridges that completely changes the asking price for him in my opinions as it did you know with kevin durant it's just these franchises even more so than Durant with Brooklyn. You have a guy like Damon Portland. If he says, I want to go there, they're going to have some you know, obligation or have some feeling about wanting to do right by him for a small market team that doesn't get stars like that very often. If you want to retain guys like that, we're seeing it with Luca in Dallas. You know, you need to you need to have some semblance of I'm going to treat this guy a certain way. If you want guys to ever, you know, it's tough for them to get free agents, but even if you draft somebody, you want them to stick with your franchise. So yeah, that changes everything. Yeah, I just don't know. I don't. I don't think Brooklyn's ready to be a title contender just yet. I mean, that's yeah. something Dame would have to certainly look at. But again, from talking to those rival execs, I mean, it just seemed like something that they thought was worthwhile for the Nets, which which I can I can certainly see, depending on the uh, the asking price. Yeah, um, the they are they are going to look they are going to look to see if they can acquire stars out there. They yeah. they have to. It's all part of the due diligence. So yeah, the it'll be on the docket. The scenario that I see with Dame in my eyes, as we said, you know, I think four first round picks for a quality, a player of his caliber, you know, top 10 guy is the baseline. Yeah. Then you talk about Simmons having to be in there to make the money work. You said two first round picks, which I think is probably the fair, you know, an additional two first round picks to take his contract. I think if Dame, you know, said he wanted to go to the Nets and potentially that goes from two to one for Portland. So yeah. we're talking five first round picks. You got Simmons probably throwing Cam Thomas, another player. That's the Nets still have six first round picks left over after that. So that's what the interesting thing to me is, is if they get Dame, where do they go from there in terms of trying to find that next guy to put alongside him to potentially yeah. make Mikhail Bridges a number three? That's where things really get interesting. And that's a scenario that I could be talked into a player like Dame because he's 32. If he could keep his form to say 35, you have three seasons to try to figure out 
you know, how do we find that next guy to put between him and McHale to really vault them into legitimate contender status? I think that that's the interesting thing there. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And, you know, like we touched on too, um, I touched on this on, on the hoop type Nets Intel story. They've got a couple of wing players that certainly people are valuing, uh, Dorian Finney-Smith and Royce O'Neal. Mm-hmm. Um, and they could have got two first-round picks for Dorian at the trade deadline. They could have got one for Royce O'Neal. Um, I think looking ahead towards the summer, relatively speaking, those values are still going to be there. Royce yeah. is under contract next year. Dorian Finney-Smith mm-hmm. – his contract looks really good looking ahead towards the CBA rise. So I, I do still believe he's going to have value. And people around the league look at him as a glue guy, three and D guy, can play multiple positions on defense. Um, he's got value. He can play the three, can play the four. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's a little bit of question of how good of a shooter is he when Luke is not there. But, um, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, still a valuable and coveted player for sure. Yeah, by the contract, you look at Dorian. I think he's under contract for the next three seasons at around thirteen million annually. Annually, and with the cap set to spike, you know, regardless of what you think about his shooting, it's a good value for a player of his capabilities. Royce O'Neal struggled in the playoffs, but is coming off the best statistical season of his career. I thought had a really solid year. So I think that's you know I was going to ask you about that next, and I think that that's another interesting thing in the Dame conversation because you talk about the Nets having these 11 first round picks and say they move a guy like Royce or Dorian and they get those maybe one for Royce or two for uh, Dorian. If they trade one of those guys, then you have those extra picks and this turns into maybe a three-way deal where the nets are, you know, being left over with even more picks to try to go to find that next guy. It's all about finding the next guy. Cause I think everybody agrees that with Dame, with Mikhail, with Cam, with Nick Claxton, they're a playoff team, but they're not in content in contender status. And if they can find a way to find that next guy after Dame, that would be the whole conversation. So no, I, I think there is something there. It's tough to say, you know, whether Portland is going to be interested in moving Dame. But as I said, you know, it, it's going to all go back to Dame's preference and what he thinks and if he has the ability to force their hand in these situations. Because we know, I mean, stars in this league, they have more power than ever before. So that's really going to be the crux of the situation, I think. No, I agree for sure, brother. Um, the Nets have a lot of optionality, which is what they've wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh I'm very curious to see again which directions they go, and uh, they've got picks in the in the twenties range. So yeah. they've done okay there before. They got Jared Allen, so we'll see. Yeah, I want to want to close it out with you touched on it briefly before, but Cam Johnson obviously heading into restricted free agency, going to be among the top storylines for Brooklyn this offseason. You reported at the start of the season that Phoenix had been discussing a deal with him as high as four years, seventy two. Johnson turned that down, you know, after a little bit in Brooklyn, I projected, I thought it'd be somewhere around four for 80. And now it's seeing that it's going to be even higher than that, or at least that's what league executives are telling you. So just give us a little preview about what you've heard on that. Yeah. I mean, look, if you're Cam Johnson rejecting that four for 72, even at one point it was like in the 66 to $72 million range, smart move by Cam, Mm -hmm. no question. Um, I think now for him, he showed he can do more in an expanded role with Brooklyn, as executives touched on. He plays a premium position, and he could shoot the ball. You look at uh, guys in the past that were shooters, Joe Harris, Davis Bertans, uh, Duncan Robinson, Malik Beasley. All these guys got paid. Yeah, There's an argument to be made that Cam Johnson is, is certainly better than all of them, younger, 
So that four for 90 range, I thought was pretty fair. Yeah. Now, in restricted free agency, I'm curious if it goes even higher than that if a team tries to make an offer sheet. To me, that's the question. Because then, you know, the Nets, all those years of the Otto Porter, you know, Tyler Johnson offer sheets, yeah. does that come back? Does the karma come pills. back? Yeah. But yeah. I, I certainly agreed with the execs on that four mm. for 90 evaluation. Because, again, it's a little bit also about inflation with the cap going up yeah. and what that's going to look like down the line. You've kind of got to project. Um, I, I really believe that that would be a fair deal um, with the upside that I do think he could potentially get more if a team wants to make an offer sheet. I touched on he'll, he'll have a lot of interest. One of those teams is going to be the Houston Rockets. Mm. Um, so we'll see. But again, obviously, a lot of it matters with the the lottery. They're certainly in the mix to get Victor Wembanyama. So we'll see. But you know, Cam has talked like a guy that mentioned at the end of the season the foundation that they have going forward. Him and Mikhail Bridges certainly close. Sean Marks talked about wanting him back, of course. Obviously, it was a key part of the Kevin Durant deal. So ultimately, as of today, you'd expect Cam Johnson back in a Brooklyn Nets uniform. Yeah, and I think it's an interesting dynamic because, like you said, that four for um, four for ninety that is, I believe, going to come in right above annually what Mikael Bridges is making. And I think that we all, I think Mikael Bridges is under contract for the next three seasons at around twenty-one million annually. So I think that just speaks to how unbelievable a value Mikael Bridges' contract is going to be with that cap set to spike because. Cam Johnson is a very good player. I think we'd all agree that Mikhail Bridges is on another level and he's going to be making on the hook for the next three years for less than what Cam's projected to get. So that's really a home run contract. And if the Nets were to go in the direction of going star hunting, I think that that contract could be a reason why. And just the fact that it adds a lot of flexibility for how they can build moving forward along with all the draft picks they have, because it's just, it's a value of contract that you're really not going to see too much in the NBA anymore. Just really got him at an unbelievable number, but I think that about does it, you know, anything else you want to add on the Brooklyn Nets heading into this off season? Well, I'd like to see if they, what they do kind of at the backup five, you know, Dayron Sharp certainly seemed like he woke up after the Nerlens Noel and uh, Moses Brown signings. They, there's just so much they can do. Um, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be an exciting offseason. That's, that's the best thing I could say, brother. For sure, man. You know, always great talking to you. One of the best in the business. Make sure you guys go follow Mike on Twitter. Check out all his stuff on Hoops Hype. So really appreciate it. And I'll talk to you soon, man. Thanks, brother. Likewise. So that does it for this episode of the Believe in Nets podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, your one-stop shop for everything happening across the sports and entertainment world. I'm your host, Eric Slater. You can find all of my work, news, articles, updates, analysis on clutchpoints.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Eric Slater underscore, always posting stuff on there, whether it be game clips, rumors, news, injuries, updates, analysis, all that and more. So appreciate you guys for listening. We'll be back soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.